Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. God, uh, I just pray your blessing upon tonight. Uh, You said that without the Spirit of God, that the things of God are foolishness, Lord, and so I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word. It would, it would be our teacher tonight, that you would uh, show us yourself. We want to see Jesus. We're like those Greeks in John chapter 12 that are coming to Andrew and Philip and saying, hey, we want to see Jesus. Show us Jesus, Lord. And so we pray that that would be our, our testimony tonight, that, that we saw you in a new way and we were changed by you and, and we leave here more encouraged and more apt to worship you and, and to proclaim you, Lord. Uh, I know I'm tired. I think all of us are tired after the the holiday and the weekend, Lord. I pray that you would give us grace, give me grace to proclaim your truth, Lord. Give them grace to receive your truth and to understand it, Lord. And uh, and I pray that your word would just do what it does. You said in Isaiah 55 that just as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the grass and causes the vegetation to grow, that, that your word will accomplish the purposes that you have for it, Lord. And so I pray that, that your word would be efficacious tonight. Uh, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it seems like there's no shortage of bad news today. right? If you watch the news uh, the last p- couple of years, it goes from a bad story to another bad story to another bad story. It's just a continuous cycle of bad news. It started a couple years ago, really, right, when, when we had COVID. And then all of a sudden there was this new disease, and they started doing this thing called two weeks to flatten the curve. And then two weeks to flatten the curve turned to two years. To, you know, we're just going to keep doing these things because you're not doing anything about it. You know, we've seen lockdowns and the mask mandates and, you know, just continual bad news on the health front. There's bad news in, in our, our societies, right? We had, you know, the riots and social upheaval and, and things like that. It, it, we watch the news and it's like more and more lawlessness and more and more bad news. They're talking about things like defunding the police. The 2020 election was a bunch of bad news, right? In the aftermath of it, January 6th and things like that. Biden becoming president and the things that he's brought has brought a continual, never-ending list of bad news, things like inflation, you know, border problems, the war in Ukraine. and it, It's just a, a never-ending cycle of bad news. And these are just some of the big things, right? Every day we're fed bad news. You know, and, and tonight is a little different. I want to talk to us about some good news. Right? And so I, I think we I forgot to put this fill-in on your thing. The first fill-in would be, the gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good news. That's, that's exactly what the gospel is. It's the evangelion, the, the good news, the proclamation of the good news. And I want us to focus on this uh, indefinite article, or this definite article, I'm sorry, the Right? It is the good news. And why is the gospel the good news? Well, it's the antidote to our biggest problem, our sin problem. Right? Out of all the problems that we have, 
the, the biggest problem is, is that we are separated, we're alienated from God because of our sin. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our, our sin, the, what we're all born into, has separated us from a holy God and, and put us under the wrath of God. And now we need something to reconcile that, something to fix that problem. And that's the gospel. You see, the gospel solves our sin issue. It's the gospel that reconciles us to a holy God. That's why it is the good news. And, and there's nothing else that could do that, I might add. There, there's no other way for a sinner to be reconciled to God other than through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is it the good news because it's the thing that reconciles us to God, that, that, that saves us from sin and hell and death, but it's also the good news because it becomes the answer for every other problem that we face. No matter what the new problem is uh, for the Christian, the solution should come from the question, how do we apply the gospel to this problem? Right? If, if our problem is social justice, we don't look at it you know, from a uh, sociology standpoint. We say, hey, how do we apply the gospel to this social justice issue if we want to find healing? We want to fix it. In fact, in fact, that's exactly what most of these epistles do. Most of the epistles in the New Testament are letters written by real people to real people in real churches who have real problems. And these apostles are writing these letters, addressing these issues, addressing these problems, and telling them, hey, this is how you take the gospel and apply it to this problem. So, so when we read our, our New Testament and the epistles, it, it's, it's loaded with the gospel. We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling us the story of Jesus. And then in large part, the epistles are taking those Gospels, taking the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and applying it to real problems. So the Gospel is the answer to man's biggest problem, and it's also the answer to every other problem that man has. The Gospel truly is the good news. The question then is, what is the gospel? How do we define the gospel? Well, the gospel is a person. The gospel really is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, if you read different theologians or different theological books about this question, about the gospel, you might find a couple of different answers. And, and it's really because they're focusing on different aspects of what the gospel is. Some might take what I call the more macro approach. And they're going to say that the gospel really is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, can, it includes everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus did. And, and I would say that's true. Right? Because he can't be our substitutionary sacrifice unless he lived a perfect life. So, so we, we need to include that. It's the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Everything that Jesus did on earth. But some take a more micro-approach. 
They focus on the key elements of the gospel message. And, and, and it's, they define the gospel as uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. What you have to believe in to be saved, to be reconciled to God. It's that life-saving message. And I would say that both of them are right, depending on how you want to look at it. Right? We, we can simplify the gospel. It's the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we want to take in all that the gospel is, it, it, it's, it's all of Jesus, all of his life. And, and every aspect of it is important to us and applicable to our life today. See, the gospel is so big and it's so majestic that we could spend the rest of our lives studying the subject of the gospel and we would barely scratch the surface. Right? The gospel is like the ocean. Right? A, a little two-year-old could come in the little white water and get his ankles wet and splash around and enjoy it and kind of have an understanding of what the beach is. But the greatest explorer, the, 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 the greatest scuba divers of the world, the Jacques Cousteau's of the world, will never explore the depths of all that Jesus is, of all that Jesus did for us, of all that the gospel is. And tonight I want to look at two passages in the New Testament where Paul defines the gospel and pulls some of these truths out of this passage that we should consider when we're thinking about the gospel and when we're preaching or presenting the gospel to others. So you can see that there's a lot of fill-ins on our sheet, so I'm going to try to go quickly through some of this. But the first passage I want us to look at is in the book of Romans. So for letter A, we're going to look at the gospel in Romans. So open up to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, gospel, this epistle, the epistle to the Romans, is Paul's magnum opus. It is his greatest writing. It is his systematic treaty on the gospel. It's probably the greatest exposition of the gospel ever written. The book of Romans is all about the gospel. In chapter 1, it's all about the wrath of God. And that's where you have to start. Because we're born into sin. We're born with a sin nature, a corrupted nature, because we come from Adam, and Adam had a sin nature after the fall. And we are under the wrath of God. We're separated from God, and we need to be reconciled to him. So we need to start there. We need to start with the fact that we need to be made right with God from the point of conception, from being uh, the point of birth. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Paul does a great job of bringing every person, Jew and Greek, underneath that condemnation. He, he shows why every single person who's ever lived 
is guilty before God and under this wrath of God. And then in chapters 4 and 5, it's all about justification. You see, it's about justification through faith. He says that that the the righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And, And he's explaining how one goes from being in God's wrath to being declared righteous and saved and and declared right by God. And it's through the gospel, through believing in the gospel, not through works, not through what you do, not through, you know, your bloodline or things like that. It's through believing the gospel message. In Romans chapter 4, he talks about a story from Genesis chapter 15 about Abraham. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So in chapters 4 and 5, it's all about how do we get saved? How are we declared righteous? And then chapters 6 through 8, it's about how are we conformed to that righteousness? We've been declared righteous. Now it's about sanctification. How is God going to take us and actually practically make us righteous? Have us go from being, you know, products of the flesh and under sin and people who are uh, you know, under the prince of the power of the air, under the direction of Satan, to being into the image of Jesus Christ. And we're conformed to the image of Jesus through the gospel. Chapter 8 is also about glorification and how he's going to take not only us, but the world and make it all new and, and renew it and, and, and bring it back to the glory that it once had before the fall. And it's through the gospel that he's going to do that. In chapters 9 through 11, we, we kind of get uh, Paul telling us kind of how the gospel is going to play out through history, through the drama of redemption, how it started with the Jews, but then they were cut off because they wouldn't receive their Messiah. They didn't have faith. And us Gentiles are grafted in, but God's not done with the Jews. He's going to bring them back in as well one day. And then chapters 12 through 16, it's all about how do we take this gospel, all these truths about how we're saved, and apply them to real-life situations. How is this gospel practically lived out? So the book of Romans is, is all about the gospel. And in the first 17 verses, we kind of have the prologue, he gives an introduction to this, and he kind of explains what the gospel is and truths about the gospel that he's later going to unpack throughout the book of Romans. So tonight we're going to look at these first seven verses, and there's plenty of truths for us to consider here. The first one is, is that the gospel brings equality. We're all first and foremost slaves of Christ. So fill in the words equality and slaves. And look at verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You know, ancient letters were written a little bit different than they are today. They were a little bit better, in my opinion, because it would introduce the author in the beginning. Right? We get a letter today, and it's like you have to read this whole letter to figure out who it's from. Right? It's like a, when someone calls me, I want to know who I'm talking to before I, I start talking to them. Right? <laughs> if it's someone you know I don't know or I don't care about, you know, I'm probably not going to listen or, or talk very long. But if it's a friend or a family member, it, I'm going to give them more of my attention. And Paul starts out this letter to the Romans, and he's identifying himself. It's the great Apostle Paul. But he identifies himself as a bondservant or a slave of Christ. That's the identity he 
first gives himself. Now, what was a bondservant? What was a slave of Christ? It was someone who chooses to be a slave by choice. You see, in the Old Testament, people would become slaves, but there was a limit to how long they could be a slave. Every seven years, they would have to be released. But at that point, they might say, hey, I like my master. I like it here. I want to stay here. I want to I serve my master the rest of my life. And they would be called a bondservant. And, and, and they would belong to their master. But think of the humility we'd have if we could realize that we're just all bondservants of Christ. If we would make that our first identity, if we would first and foremost identify ourselves all as bondservants of Christ, as slaves of Christ. Now, could you imagine this? Could you imagine two slaves? Like, like think all the way back to kind of chattel slavery in, in, the, in the United States. Can you imagine two slaves arguing with each other over who's the greatest or who's better than the other one? One of them's like, you know, I'm better, you know. I get to be the slave who washes the dishes. You're the slave who picks cotton. I get to work in the house. I'm much better than you are. You know, that's ridiculous, right? They're, they're slaves. They're, they're, all they do is what their master tells them to do. Not one of them is better than the other one. And it's the same thing with us. It's the same thing for Christians. You see, the gospel makes us all sinners and all in need of Christ's blood. And once we're saved, we're all slaves of Christ, and we all serve at his pleasure. In other words, we're all on equal footing. Not one of us is greater than the other one. There's no reason for a Christian or someone in the church to have any form of pride. Pastor Bob isn't any better than the Christian who only comes to church once a month in God's eyes. Because they're all equally sinners and they're all equally bondservants. You see, the gospel brings an equality which should produce a humility in our life. Number two, you have a part in the ministry of the gospel. Fill in the word part. In verse 1, he says, Paul, the bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called as an apostle. Paul was called to be an apostle. What are you called to be? God calls us to Jesus, and he places us in the church, and then he gifts us uniquely and calls us to various ministries to use these unique gifts that he's given us for his glory. And each one of us, he, he wants us to have some part or be taking part in this gospel ministry. And I'm so thankful that we're at a church that provides all kinds of opportunities for people to take part in this. That we're at a church that believes in the priesthood of all believers. That every single one of you guys are a priest and you're to represent Christ to this lost world and represent this lost world to Christ and, and be a part of the gospel ministry. And there's all different ways that you could do that. Now, one way is simply through prayer, praying. You can take up a prayer ministry and be praying for the ministries and the, the servants of God and the, the gospel message to go out and things like that. Another way is to just to give. Giving is a ministry and supporting the gospel ministry of the church. Another way is to go out and join one of the ministries and, and, and partake in that. It, it's countless the ways that we could take part in the ministry of the gospel. But the point is, is that God wants you to take part in the ministry of the gospel. In 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, it says, As each one of you 
has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, it doesn't matter what role you've been called to. What matters is that you figure it out and that you're faithful with it. That's what we're going to be judged by anyways, is our faithfulness. I'm not, hopefully one day I'm not going to hear, well done, good and faithful pastor. No, it's well done, good and faithful servant. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful usher. No, you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter. We're all on equal footing in that regard. So God's calling you to serve him. Where? How? Number three. The gospel sets us apart from the world. Verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul set apart for the gospel of God. Paul saw his entire life as being for the purpose of the gospel. He was to be a, a trophy of the gospel's saving power. He lived to preach the gospel. He longed for opportunities to preach the gospel. In Colossians 3, he asked the church to pray that the soldiers that he's chained to 24 hours a day, that God would open a door for him to be able to share the gospel with them. I find that amazing. I mean, he's literally chained to these people all day, every day. They can't go anywhere. They, they can't do anything. They're, they're attached to Paul. And Paul said, hey, just give me an open door that I can share the gospel with this guy. You know, open his heart so that he could receive the message that I have for him. I'm just going to keep sharing it and sharing it and sharing it. Pray that God will open that guy's heart so he could receive it. Paul really was an ambassador of the gospel. Not only that, but he also he wanted to be around other gospel-minded people. He wanted to be in fellowship with Christians. He wanted to be united with people who were focused on the same thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the gospel. He had no interest in what the world had to offer. It was all about the gospel. In Galatians 6.14, Paul writes this, But may it never be that I would boast, except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You know, maybe our gospel message today lacks power because we aren't truly crucified to the world. We're kind of straddling two things. We're about the gospel, but we're also kind of in the world and kind of doing our thing. Paul was separated from the world. He, he, was, he was holy. He was set apart from those things. It was all about the gospel. You know, the early church in Rome it wasn't primarily persecuted because it believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The primarily, primary reason that the Romans persecuted the early church was because they didn't take part in the things of Rome. They didn't go to the gladiator games. They didn't worship the emperor and, and do, go to the bathhouses and 
the orgies and all these things that the rest of the Roman Empire did. They kind of had, they were kind of a separatist movement. They stuck to themselves and they worshiped God and they took care of each other and, you know, and, 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 and focused on that. They, they were completely separate and cut off from the world. But that's what made their evangelism work. People, people saw that. And they saw the fruit of the Spirit that they were displaying and the love and the joy and the peace, the patience and long-suffering and the self-control and the goodness, all of these things, them displaying that. And they're like, I want that. This is so much more attractive than what Rome has to offer. But part of what made that so sweet is they provided that contrast, that they were actually set apart for the gospel. Point number four, the gospel has always been the plan. Fulfilling always in plan. In verse two, it says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. You know, there's this idea that I hear a lot. I think a lot of Christians think that the Old Testament is all about the law, right? It's just about the law, obeying the law. And the New Testament's all about the gospel. It's all gospel, right? Well, that's a false statement. Two weeks ago, when we were talking about the law, I made the point that both the law and the gospel run through the entire Bible. That we have the law and the gospel in the Old Testament, and we have the law and the gospel in the New Testament. Yeah, they serve different purposes, but they're both there. The law is to condemn you. It's to show display God's holiness and show you that you are short and that you need a Savior. The gospel is to provide that Savior, to, to provide that, to bridge that gap and, and, and make you right with God. But we see both throughout the both Testaments. In, in fact, from the very first sin in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, we have what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first mention of the gospel. God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Speaking of the cross, speaking of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or how about Genesis 15, 6, where it talks about Abraham. It says, then he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. You see, those are both examples of the gospel in the Old Testament. Or how about the law in the New Testament in Matthew 5.18? Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Right? The, the law is always going to have a purpose. It's always going to be around. So we have both the law and the gospel in the Old and the New Testament. But here Paul talks about this gospel being according to the Old Testament scriptures. I've got this series of commentaries, and, and it's titled this. It's called The Gospel According to the Old Testament. And there's countless ways that we could see the gospel through types and shadows throughout the Old Testament. For instance, remember when Joshua sent the two spies in to Jericho to spy out the land? And Rahab, the harlot, hid them on the roof. And remember what Rahab said to the spies before she sent them out? She says, hey, remember me and my family when you guys come in here. Don't destroy us when you destroy the rest of the city. And so these two spies said, well, do this. Hang a, a scarlet cord 
from your window, and we won't destroy whoever's in that house. But you have to be in the house. Right? And, and what a picture of the gospel that is. Right? Because you take that scarlet cord, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, and apply it. But then you also you have to be in Christ. Right? It wasn't enough for him to die on the cross for the sins of the world. You actually have to apply it to you. You have to be in Christ. So there's all kinds of examples like that running throughout the Old Testament where we see the gospel. Point number five. The gospel is about a God-man. Look at verse 3. Or filling God and man, and then look at verse 3. It says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. He says, Concerning his son. This is talking about Jesus' divine nature. Remember in John chapter 5, they're mad because he healed this guy who had been lame for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. And remember what their beef was? You healed him on the Sabbath. Right? I mean, not that he did a miracle. They're like, no, you did that on the Sabbath. This isn't good. Right? And, and remember what Jesus said to him? My father is working till now, and so I'm working. And they were mad because they was equating himself, you know, calling God his father, making himself God in their eyes. That's the way they understand it. They had, you know, kind of like the saying, like father, like son. The, you know, the, the father of something or the son of something, they're, they're kind of related. And so calling it Jesus the son of God or concerning his son is speaking of his divine nature. But then it was says that he was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh. He was a, a, a real human. He, he, he came from the descendancy of a, a real human, a real person. He came from the lineage of David. So Jesus was divine, and he was human. And this is extremely important. This is, this is theologically really an important truth. And it's important that Jesus is God and he's man. Why? Well, Hebrews 10.4 says this. He sa it says, for the, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices aren't going to cut it for forgiving sins. A perfect person needed to die to be the sacrifice for sinful people. Yeah, God would allow animal sacrifices to cover sin for a time, but the ultimate payment for sin needed to be made by a perfect human. But there is a problem. There, there are no perfect humans. Because our, our, our first two parents, they, they sinned and they were corrupted. And then everything that comes from them comes corrupted. David says this in Psalm 51.5. Psalm 51 is a great example of the gospel. You could really see the gospel throughout Psalm 51. But David says this. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not talking about that he was conceived because of some kind of sinful act or, or sinful relationship. No. He was the last of many kids to be born. Jesse, his father, was a righteous man. That, that, that wasn't the case. What he's saying is this, is from the very moment that I was conceived, when conception happened in my mother's womb, I was guilty. I, I was culpable to God as a sinner. I had a sin nature. And then I was born, and I just went about proving that to the world. It's a great verse right there for the sanctity of life in the womb, by the way. 
because only a, a human being could be culpable to a holy God. A bag of cells can't be culpable to God. It has to be a human being. So God fixes this. How? By becoming a man and being conceived of the Holy Spirit, allowing Jesus to not have the sin nature, which allows him to be spotless and blameless and without blemish, qualifying him to be our perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Right? For Jesus to be able to give himself for the gospel sacrifice, he needed to not have a sin nature. And the only way that that could come about was through the divine incarnation. But this also allowed Jesus to be an explanation for God, to come in and be able to show people the true nature of who God is, to display God through himself. In John 1, at the end of John's prologue, in verse 18, he says, No one's ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And because Jesus was both human and both God, he's the exact explanation of what God is in human flesh. Colossians says that he's the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form. The fact that he's also human and divine also allows him to be our sympathetic high priest. Because he was human and was tempted in every way that we are without sin. So, so he knows. He, not only is he our savior, he's our high priest, and he knows exactly what we're going through when we're facing temptation. He knows exactly what we're going through when we're facing rejection, when we're facing hurt, when the the products of the problems of this fallen world are coming upon us. He knows exactly what that's like because he walked through all of that. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. In verses 14 through 16, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No matter what we're running through, going through, no matter what problem we're facing, Jesus is the one to run to. Because he has faced it. He's gone through it without sin. And he's got the resources to give us to help us to do the exact same thing. So this gospel, it's about a God-man named Jesus. We need both natures. By the way, this is where every cult goes wrong. Just about every cult there is messes up one of these two sides of who Jesus is. Either his divine nature or his human nature. So it's important that we have both. Point number six, the new or the gospel is validated by Christ's resurrection, from the word resurrection. In verse four it says, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not that Jesus is the Son of God because he rose from the dead. No, the fact that he rose from the dead, it validates or it proves his claim of being God. Remember what he, he told these uh, Jews when they were demanding that he did a sign? 
and they're saying, hey, show us some sign. We don't believe who you are. We, these things you're doing, they're, they're not cutting it for us. We want you to do some astronomical sign in the sky and prove that, that you are who you say you are. Jesus answers them this way in Matthew 12, verse 39. He says, but he answered them and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was the sign. That's what was going to validate Jesus' claim that he is the Messiah, was that God was going to raise him from the dead. You know, the empty tomb is the receipt of the cross. The empty tomb is God's valid, the validation that God's plan to save sinners through the death of Jesus is true. Jesus had been foretelling that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be given into the hands of sinners. He was going to be tried. He was going to be beaten. And he was going to be crucified. And then on the third day, he was going to rise again. And when he rose from the dead, he validated all those claims about who he said he was. Point number seven, the gospel changes our Behavior. Look at verse 5. It says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. It's going to bring about the obedience of faith. If we're saved by the gospel, we should see changes in our lives. Right? It brings about obedience. It's exactly what God said it would do in the Old Testament. In the New Covenant passage of Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel says this, he says, speaking for God, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you with clean water. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Here it is. I will put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. God's going to cause people that are saved, that truly believe the gospel, He'll give them a new heart and cause them to walk in their statutes, or in his statutes. In other words, if we're truly saved, if we truly believe the gospel, we're going to see some growth in this area. We're going to start being conformed to God's statutes. So do you see progress in your walk with God in this area? Do you see yourself overcoming sins? We also need to kind of realize kind of the flip side of this. Right? We also need to remember that it's the gospel that's going to bring change in our life. Right? No matter what the issue is, whether it's sexual sin or drinking and drugs or anger and violence or laziness, whatever problem it is that we're facing, the answer isn't to, to try harder to fix it. The answer isn't to kind of set up boundaries so we don't fall into that sin. Those things could be good. The answer is to take the gospel and apply it to the problem. 
to, 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 to live out the gospel. And so often that we get away from that. We start seeing we have a problem, and it just goes to pragmatism. pragmatism. Say, hey, how do I fix this? What can I do? And we lean on our own understanding. Instead of taking Jesus' approach, we need to deny ourselves. We need to pick up our cross daily and live like Jesus did. Follow him. And, and we'll start to see victory. We'll, we'll start to see the chains coming off. Point number eight. We're brought to the gospel by God's effective calling. Verses 6 and 7, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. To us who believed, or to us who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the called of Jesus Christ. We're called as saints. We talked about this when we talked about God's calling. There's two different types, or two different ways God calls people. We have God's general call, and that goes out to everybody. God is calling every person everywhere on the planet to come to the cross and receive forgiveness, to believe the gospel. But there's a problem. That's against people's nature. It's not that they can't come. It's that they won't. I mean, that's, that's you know... Go, go find somebody on the street that's not a believer and say, hey, you want to follow my God? He says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross every day, and live like Jesus did. You need to die and, and see how that goes. Nobody's going to want that. Right? So, so there's a problem. And God gets away, uh, fixes that by effectively calling people. So, so God's message goes out to everybody. He's commanding everybody to come to the cross and receive forgiveness. But there's some people that he's ensuring that when they hear that message, they come. That's God's effectual calling. That's where it says in John 6, verse 44, where it says, Nobody can come to, the fa- come to me unless the Father draws them or, or drags them to me. That, that, that's what that's talking about. And Jesus is identifying those that believe the gospel here as those who are called. That's actually their title, the called, throughout the New Testament. That's our title. We're the called. And this is great because there's security here. If God's initiated that process and he's called us to to be saints, that, that gives us some security because it's not a matter of our decision. It's a matter of God's calling. That's why in Romans Chapter 8, we have what's called the golden chain of redemption. And God, or God, yeah, God through Paul is linking these different aspects of our salvation together like a chain. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, glorified. Right? So if we've been called, we could count on the fact that one day we will be glorified. This fact that God effectively calls people, this takes all the pressure off of us in the world when we do evangelism. Right? Because it's not up to us to convince people. We just need to be faithful to share the message. And we could trust that if people 
do respond the right way, it's because God's calling them. God's effectively bringing them to himself. It takes all the pressure off of us. So that is how we see the gospel in Romans. Now we see the gospel in 1 Corinthians as well. What is my phone doing? It's trying to create new widgets or tell me how to create new widgets. So now flip over, let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about the resurrection. Paul's defending the resurrection. Not necessarily the fact that Jesus rose. It's all about the fact that believers are going to rise. The church in Corinth was divided over everything. And they were divided in theology uh, having to do with their eschatology, the fact that they're going to rise again. Some of them were saying, hey, we're not going to rise again. There, there is no resurrection of the dead. That was causing them to live unholy lives. Right? If you're not going to be resurrected, what difference does it make how you live? And, and, and so Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15 to show them, hey, first of all, Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we're going to rise from the dead as well. But he centers his whole or he begins his whole teaching on the resurrection, this whole chapter, all 58 verses of it, he, he begins it talking about the gospel. The gospel is the reason for the resurrection. Well, let's read these first 11 verses and then pick some truths out of there. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered it to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then I or they... So we preached, and so you believed. The first thing I want us to see is the gospel brings us into God's forever family. Fill in the word family. He begins, now I want to make known to you brethren. Brethren. We belong to the family of God. What a blessing that is, that that we're in God's family. Remember when... uh, Jesus' brothers, they come to uh, see Jesus, and uh, he's speaking to this crowd, and he tells the, the, this crowd, right, they, they come in and they say, hey, your, your brother and your sister and your, your mother are here looking for you. Remember what Jesus says? He says, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother? But those that obey, what, obey God. Right, those that obey God. These are my brothers and mother 
the sister, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. Right? And, and, and so, yeah, we're in a family, right? And, and most of our families, if we're willing to be honest, are, are kind of messed up. Right? But, but God has an even greater family that we're going to be a part of. The, a, a family that's going to last forever. And this is going to greatly change the way that we see each other. Right? I mean, we should, it should greatly change the way that we treat each other. It, it should change the way that we treat our possessions. It should change the way that we look at each other. It, it, it should allow us to, you know, have fellowship with people that we wouldn't have fellowship with in any other circumstance. It brings all types of people together. It put Simon, who's a, a, a zealot, a zealot was anyone, someone who was willing to do anything to overthrow the Roman government. They were, they were like terrorists in the first century. They, they, would, they would do it by force. And Matthew, Levi, was a tax collector. He was a Jewish person working for the Roman government to extort the Jewish people. Right? These two groups hated each other. In any other circumstance, if Simon ran into Levi, I guarantee you he would try to kill him. But God brought them together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They traveled around with Jesus together. They camped together. They ate meals together because they had the gospel in common. And the gospel could bring us together with people that we would in no other way be able to reconcile with. No matter what our differences, people should be able to work out because we have the common gospel. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. Like, why are you taking another brother to court in front of unbelievers? You're suing each other. You're, you've already lost. It's better, you, you know, you, you've offended God in such a great way and he's forgiving you. You might as well just forgive the person. Let it go. And that's the type of family we have in Christ. Where we could be open and vulnerable and trust that We'll be protected because of the gospel. We'll be forgiven because of the gospel. Point number two, the gospel gives us stability in a slippery world. In verse one again, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand. The gospel needs to be preached, it needs to be received, but it needs to be stood in. In the church, there's this understanding or this belief that the gospel is kind of how you get into the church, how you get saved, but then after that, uh, you know, you move on to other things. No, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. I just read a quote by Spurgeon. It said, the greatest thing a Christian could do is think on the gospel every single day. You know, there's many ways that we could be led astray. There's many false worldviews. There's many strongholds that the enemy has today. There's many ways that he can deceive us. But if we keep our focus on the gospel, we won't be led astray. We won't fall away. It's going to give us cleats to stand firm in this slippery world. We won't be able to be pushed around by the enemy, by the devil. That's why it's a part of our armor in Ephesians chapter 6. It's We need to shod our shoes with the Readiness to use the gospel of peace, right? Because it's, it's the gospel that's going to move us forward. It's the gospel that's going to allow us to stand firm, to stand strong in this fallen world. 
Point number three, the gospel is an eternal message and we need it every day. So an eternal and every day. And look at verse two. It says, by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. It's an eternal message. It existed before creation in the mind of God. Even before God created the world, he knew that it was going to fall into sin. He knew that that his creation, his people were going to be separated from him. And so he made an agreement amongst the Trinity that, hey, I'm going to draw some people and give them to you, Jesus, but you're going to go to the earth and you're going to die for them and then the Holy Spirit's going to go and apply that in real time to people. But this message, the gospel, it's existed in eternity past. Fast forward to the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 5, remember the scroll is presented and and John is weeping because no one is worthy to take the scroll. And remember they comfort him and says, no, 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 it's okay. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's overcome. And the lamb, having been slain, comes and takes the scroll. Jesus is still the lamb slain in heaven. When he rises from the dead and he appears to the apostles, he still has his wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Remember, it was when Thomas took his hand and thrust it in Jesus' side that he realized it was really the resurrected Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. We're always going to need the gospel. It's an eternal message. It says, by which you have been saved. That's a present tense verb. You've been saved and, and you're continually saved through this gospel message. So that we need to hold fast to the gospel. We need to continue holding on to this gospel, another present tense verb. So if we're truly saved, if we haven't believed in vain, we're going to continue in the gospel. The gospel is going to become a greater and greater part of our life. This is what the perseverance of the saints are. The saints persevere because God perseveres through them. And this perseverance is in continuing to believe and apply the gospel. In John chapter 8, there's these people and they were saying that they believed in what Jesus was preaching. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they weren't saved. And what does he say? He says that if you continue in my word, then you truly are disciples of mine. Well, what's Jesus' word? Repent and believe the gospel. If you continue in the gospel... You're content, you'll be Jesus' disciple. Point number four, the gospel comes from God. Look at filling God and look at verse three. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul received the gospel, he's saying. I'm giving you something that was given to me, but it wasn't given to me by man. I got it from divine revelation. And you're saying, well, why are you saying that? How do you know that? How do you know man didn't give it to him? Because of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verses 11, following it says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have 
hated my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. But I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. I didn't consult with human beings, he's saying. Uh, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia, and I returned once more to Damascus. And for three years, I went... Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other disciples except James, the Lord's brother. Now I want, now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. It was still unknown by my sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. I didn't get this from man. It wasn't flesh and blood that gave this to me. Even when I first heard it, I I didn't go to Peter and the rest of the apostles to be taught what it was. No, I went out to Arabia. I went and hung out with the Nabataeans. And I met with the Lord Jesus and got it directly from him. See, I believe those three years that Paul was out there in the Nebatean wilderness, he was alone with God and, and was learning his theology directly from God. God was teaching him what the true gospel is, all the facets of the gospel. He went through the greatest seminary there was. Point number five, the gospel is scriptural. Look at verse four. And that it was buried and that it was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Remember, what scriptures is Paul talking about? What scriptures are presenting this gospel? Well, it's the Old Testament. Those were the only scriptures they had. Remember Jesus after, after he died? He met these two guys on the road to Emmaus. They were, they were walking, you know, just a few miles from Jerusalem, and they're all bummed out. And Jesus starts walking, and he's like, "Hey, why are you guys all bummed out?" And they're like, "Haven't you heard what happened? Are you the only one that doesn't know what happened?" And Jesus starts walking with them, and, and, and then he says, "This." He says, "Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary?" For the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. He went through the entire Old Testament and showed how it was all really about him. He he pointed out himself in the Old Testament, the gospel in the Old Testament. And if you come on Wednesday night, that's exactly what Pastor Bob is doing. We're going through the Old Testament looking for Jesus. 
And in the Old Testament, the gospel is explicitly stated. We saw that Genesis 3.15, right? That proto-evangelion. But then we also see it through typology. We see it in, in stories and pictures and shadows. Like Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham, take your, your son Isaac, your only begotten son, up onto the mountain and sacrifice him. And he obeys. And he's about to sacrifice his son and the angel stops him. And he hears the ram caught in the thicket and God's saying, I will provide, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Or how about Psalm 16? Psalm 16 is all about the, the death and, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the psalm that Peter exposits on Pentecost. He, he preaches Psalm 16. It's, it's all about that. Or how about Psalm 22, which, you know, hundreds if not a thousand years before the cross explains the cross in perfect detail, the way that Jesus was going to die on it. Hundreds of years before anybody was even executed through crucifixion, it explained what crucifixion looked like perfectly. Or how about Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 perfectly describes the cross. It, it perfectly has the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened it not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with the wicked men. Yet he was with the rich men in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, that he would render himself as a guilt offering. Here it is, the resurrection. But he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How is he going to see his offspring? How is he going to prolong his days if he's dead? God's going to raise him from the dead. So we have the death and the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 53. There's all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of the gospel. And all this goes to show that the gospel wasn't plan B. It was God's plan all along, and he told about it in the Old Testament. It wasn't like things got wrong and, hey, i got to figure out how to fix this. I'll kill my son. No, that was the plan from the beginning. Point number six, the gospel is trustworthy. Throw in the word trustworthy. There are many credible eyewitnesses. Throw in the word credible. In verses five through eight, Paul's going to give credible witnesses to the gospel. And in court cases, uh, witness or eyewitness testimony has always been uh, good evidence. We, you know, that, that's what cases were based off of was eyewitness testimony. And we, we just recently got cameras and things like that. Before it was always eyewitness testimony. 
And here Paul's going to give us six sets of witnesses in chronological order as they saw Jesus in resurrected form. In verse 6, he says, or in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for stone. It's the uh, Aramaic version of, of Peter. Petros is the Greek, right? But he appeared, appeared first to Peter. The first person that he appeared to when he rose from the dead was the Apostle Peter. What, what grace, what mercy that is. Right? That the one who denied him three times and, and, and no doubt was just completely broken over the fact that he did that. That Jesus would first search Peter out and appear to him and say, Peter, you know what? It's okay. I'm alive and I forgive you. It's okay. And then later in John 21, he would reinstate him to ministry. But first he wanted to come and appear to Peter and say, hey, I forgive you. <laughs> it's okay. And then he appeared to the 12. Right? What is this? You know, I thought Judas killed himself. Well, he did, but that kind of became the name of the 12. It was like the, the title of the group. And then in Acts 1, they would replace him with Matthias, Matthias, right? But it was the 11 apostles, the, the, the apostolic band that, that Jesus then appeared to, right? And, and that's John 20. That, that, that's the upper room, right? They're, they're in the room, and they're, having, they're hiding out, really, and Jesus appears behind locked doors to them. And then he appears to over 500 people at once in Galilee. Right? These are 500 credible, honorable people. These aren't drug addicts. These aren't people from Woodstock. These are, these are normal people. And they all saw Jesus at the same time, risen from the dead. They all explained it the exact same way. They all had the exact same testimony. And then he appeared to James. It's probably his, his brother. Remember in John chapter 7, James is mocking him. Like, hey, it says he, that his brothers didn't believe in him. He's saying, hey, you know, go up to the feast. Do some, some miracle there, and, and, and everybody will believe you. You'll win your disciples back. Basically saying the same thing that Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle, and, and then people will listen to you. Do some great things. But he didn't believe him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it, we get the sense that his believers thought he was insane. He had gone mad. His brothers did. And one of them is James. And so the fact that James would go from a guy who was mocking his brother, a guy who thought his brother was insane, to a believer in his brother and the leader of the Jerusalem church, the one who's calling the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, something had to happen. He saw the resurrected Lord. Then he appeared to all the apostles. This is probably on the Mount of Olives when he ascended into heaven. The whole apostolic band was there. They all saw him go into heaven together. And lastly, he appears to Paul as one of untimely birth. What does that mean? What, what does untimely birth mean? It means he didn't have the, the three years, the, the gestation period, so to speak, of being with Jesus during his ministry. He came later. He, he didn't have that. He, Jesus made up for that in, 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 in Nabataean wilderness. 
but, but he didn't have that three years with Jesus. I, also, I think it could also mean this, that he kind of kicked against the goads and, and was fighting coming to Jesus for a long time. He didn't come to Jesus as quickly as he should have. And so it was an untimely birth. But think about the witness of Paul testifying that, that Jesus is the Messiah. This guy who was hell-bent to arrest and kill Christians, to wipe Christianity off the planet, all of a sudden is a follower of Christianity and the leading preacher of Christianity? How did that happen? What made that change? He found a verse in his Bible? I don't think so. He probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. No. He actually saw the Lord. He saw the risen Lord. And he had risen to believe in him. Notice how Jesus lastly appeared to Paul. The last person that Jesus appeared to in a bodily resurrection form before ascending into heaven was the Apostle Paul. So if anybody comes to you and says, hey, Jesus appeared to me, you say, no, the Bible says he lastly appeared to Paul. Not Joseph Smith, not whoever. Paul was the last one to see Jesus in bodily form. Yeah, John saw a vision of Jesus there on Patmos, but the one last one to actually see Jesus in resurrected form was Paul. Number seven, the gospel could save anyone, fill in the word anyone. Verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy, verses 12 through 15. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. The idea is, if the gospel could save Paul, it could save anybody. There's no one too far gone. There's no one that's committed a sin too great that the gospel can't forgive them. Right now, there's this popular show on Netflix about a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer. Right? And there's... Uh, some controversy about this because it talks about how Jeffrey Dahmer on death row before he was executed for the heinous things he did, he says he, he came to faith in Jesus. He came to believe in Jesus. And there's evidence of, of him speaking of that. Now whether he did or he didn't, I don't know. But some Christians have a problem with that. The world has a big problem with that. How could a guy do these things, go to heaven, and somebody like Mother Teresa possibly not? What's the gospel? If you truly believe in the gospel, yeah, it could even forgive somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer. Point number eight, gospel ministry comes with assistance. Verse 10, fill in the word assistance. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, 
but the grace of God in me. Paul saw it like this. He says, hey, man, I, I labored. I worked. I worked harder than all the other apostles. Right? It, I mean, I just I made this my life's ambition, and I gave it everything I have. I was willing to spend and be spent for the gospel, he says. But as I moved forward, as I progressed, as I took these steps forward, I realized it wasn't me. It was God's grace. It was God's grace working in me. So yeah, we got to take the step of faith. We got to, you know, <laughs> take the, the 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 step out, you know, and and do it. And we got to apply the work. But if we do that, I guarantee we'll be met with grace, and God will give us more than enough grace to accomplish what He's calling us to do. That's how ministry works. Colossians one twenty eight and twenty nine. Paul says this: We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this, person, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I love that. Number nine, the gospel needs to be preached. Fill in the word preached. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The gospel had the consistent testimony. Paul, the other disciples, the early church, they all preached the same gospel message. And people would believe it. That's how they would come to faith. But it needs to be preached. How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? How are they going to hear if nobody's sent? Right? How beautiful are the feet of those that preach, that bring the good news of the gospel of peace? Right? We, we've been saved by the gospel. And now we've been commissioned to be ambassadors of the gospel. We've been commissioned to go out and preach the gospel to a lost world, including the same gospel that we receive. It needs to be preached. That's what he says in, in verse 1. All the way back in verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, and you received, and which you stand. The only reason we received it is because someone preached it to us. Now are we going to pay it forward and preach it to others? Our last point, the gospel is relevant, or relevant in our biggest need today. It's still in relevant in need. You know, one of the, the big issues that we have in culture is this social justice issue, and it's stemming out of really uh, people's perception that law enforcement doesn't treat everybody equally, right? Some ethnicities are targets of law enforcement and are... Uh, you know, the object of the law enforcement's abuse and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, whether there's validity to that, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you decide. But I'll say the answer to that is the gospel. You know how I know? Because in Acts 16, there's this story of Paul ministering in Philippi. And there's this demoniac lady following him around and saying, this is the servant of the Most High God. Is continually saying that and, and, and driving Paul mad to the point where he turns around and casts the demon out of her. Right? But that made the, this, this servant girl, her masters, mad because she used to make them money fortune-telling through this spirit that was in her. And, and so these guys, they go and tell the police, basically, and they come and arrest Paul. 
And not only did they arrest him, they beat him. They lock him up wrongfully. They put him in a torture device in the junk dungeon. And, and, and Paul's there. And him and Silas are, are praising the Lord at midnight. And he went to the store, and there was this earthquake. And the chains come off. And all the doors of the prison open. And then the guard sees it, and he's about to kill himself. Because if the prisoners got away, then he would be tortured to death. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't do that. We're all here. And, and Paul preaches the gospel to this guy who had beaten and arrested him. And then you, you know what this soldier does? Takes Paul to his house, cleans his wounds, provides a meal. They sit down together, and, and, and they eat a meal together. They're having fellowship together. You know, this cop who had wrongly arrested and wrongly beat an innocent guy, Paul, are reconciled through the gospel. And it's not just that, hey, you know what, oh, we got the gospel, it doesn't really matter after that, truth doesn't matter, no one's accountable to anything. No, because the next day the city officials come and they, they, they want to release Paul. And they want to release him out the back door and make it look like nothing happened. What does Paul say? No, you, you did this in open, you, you arrested me wrongly, we're going to do this the right way. We're going to go out the right way. We're going to explain what happened to people. And we're not going to just sweep it under the rug. But the gospel is what's going to fix these problems in our life and in our society. Amen? So, God, uh, we do thank you for your gospel. It is our biggest need. It is our greatest gift. And it is our highest calling to proclaim it, Lord. And I pray that we would be better about it. I pray that we'd focus on it more. I pray that it would be uh, what we would live out and exemplify to the world. And it would be what we call people to, Lord. So give us grace to do that. We love you. Lord, I thank you that we're here. I pray for those that aren't. I pray that you bring them back to us, Lord. And uh, I just look forward to all that you have in store for us. May it exalt your gospel and bring glory to your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.